God. Dear Lord, we're grateful for your mercies to us. We're grateful for the joy we have in each other. We ask that you would build us up in this faith as you would have us. That your will, be, will, will would be done here on earth. And in your son's name we pray. Amen. Okay, we're in Corinthians chapter 1. And Corinthians chapter 1, um, as you know from your reading of Corinthians, you know that it was one of those letters to a difficult church. And in this day and age, when so many churches in America are difficult churches, it would seem that it should be our home ground is to go to Corinthians and find out how wrong-headed we've managed to get. Now, of course, I think the best of you all. So you can imagine some other church in all of this or blame it on somebody else, but Christians are guilty of destroying the Lord's kingdom in a variety of different ways. Somebody had asked me a few months ago, what was, what was the problem? You ever... Now, I, I don't know where you stand on social political issues, nor do I care that much. Um, but you know that there's an embarrassment factor, apart from, you know, I don't think you should be embarrassed about being in fellowship with a fundamentalist, just because he's a fundamentalist, you know. Uh, but when there's an embarrassment about the church for really good reasons, the shame that the lives of the believers, a pastor is caught with a Puerto Rican pool boy, there's money issues, there's power issues, there's treatment of parishioners. I started making a little list of, you know, try to like one word list. What's wrong with the church today? Things like legalism, that's, that's wrong with the church. And as I was making this list, and it's in a little post-it note by my computer, um, to remind me what to avoid. But as I was looking at it, because I was having to prepare a sermon yesterday, because I had no time this morning, which meant I missed my Pop-Tart this morning. So you can see how it affects the sermon. I was looking at that post-it note going, oh... Maybe there's an idea for a sermon here. And the word factiousness is on the list. Well, you know, it's almost self-evident that Christians get together to find some reason to break apart. Usually about being, being right, you know. And I know what that struggle is like. Now, what about factiousness? I mean, what it... Factiousness, fancy Bible word... Um, for divisiveness or divisiveness. And it says in Titus 3.10 here on the left hand side, as for the man who is factious, after admonishing him once or twice, have nothing more to do with him. That's sort of like the end of the road there. And some of us would like to run to that point. I had a phone call a few months ago from somebody out of country pulling their hair out about some home church they had, were in and somebody had started coming to it who was, who was so factious that everything was an argument. 
about how they wanted to change this home church they started coming to. And everybody else says, so what do we do? How do we do it? You know, well, this verse comes in handy sometimes. Warn them, admonish them once or twice, and then say, see ya. Don't have anything to do with them. Say, so, well, doesn't that, doesn't that destroy the fellowship you have with the factious person? You, why, yes, it does. Well, yes, it does. And it may be they weren't after destroying fellowship. They were after being right and making everybody go along with them so that the group they were in would be thinking what they want to think. It doesn't matter what the theology is. But you know that you can't... I don't want suddenly everybody looking around after church and spotting the person who has the most opinions in this church and then running up to them and admonishing them twice and then ignoring them for the rest of their lives. That's not how we deal with Because we say, if that's the end of the road, if it's better to not be in a group with someone who wants to make groups, that's sort of almost oxymoronic, to not be in a group, not be in fellowship with somebody who wants to insist that their fellowship is only on agreement in ideas. You want to be in, a, in fellowship with those who disagree with you about all sorts of things. As for the welcome the weaker brother but not for disputes over opinions, it says in Romans 14. But our work isn't done when we say admonish the factious person because all too often that verse gets into the hand of the factious person and they're looking at you like, what are you doing thinking that view of end times? And they go around reprimanding you. It's not being reprimanded for your view. It's being reprimanded for being factious. The word in, in the, I'm not a Greek scholar, so don't, don't ask me questions. But this is where we get the word heretic. The word, the word that we get heretic from is the same word as factious. That's all a heretic is. It's not a special list of things that you didn't agree with. It's being the kind of person who disrupts the peace of the church by insisting on their divergent view. And even if they were right, and the church they were in was wrong, they'd be the one in sin. Even if you're right, being factious is the problem. And you know this is going to come in handy, because you're going to, this is a college town, you, know, you can graduate, you, it's not like Hotel California, you can check out, and you get to leave. Now, the lucky ones, if you live right and pay your taxes, get to stay. But most of you are going to go on with your life. You're going to marry some schmo, and he's going to get a job in, you know, Waukesha, Wisconsin. And off you'll go. And you'll look for a church, and you'll run into, no matter what church it is, somebody in the pews, factious. So, this is a great passage, Corinthians 1. 1 Corinthians 1. But as I looked at it, because I wanted to look at not what do you do at the end when somebody is being really, really difficult, or you're tempted to be really difficult, can we learn anything about our approach to the Christian life to keep us away from being factious? Because that, that's the sin. Not being right. My father always said, you can be wrong being right, because he had Doug and Evan Wilson for sons. <laughs> Doug was wrong. <laughs> Paul 
called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with those, with all those who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We have uh, an extra player. Sosthenes is a, one of the believers from Corinth um, in Acts 18 when a mini riot is created by the Christians. The Romans won't listen to the objections and so they grab, the Jews grab Sosthenes, who is a ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the Roman tribunal. Try to get attention. And then my mother's favorite verse, when applied to Evan Wilson, uh, arrives. Gallio was the proconsul. Um, what does it say? Could I quote this correctly? But Gallio paid no attention to this. My mother quoted it in the King James. But Gallio cared for none of these things. That's what she thought of me, that I, I ignored life. He cared for none of these things. But that's where Sosthenes shows up. And Sosthenes is the co-author or the co-sender of the letter back to Corinth. Uh, I guess he was okay with Paul with getting him beat up in front of the synagogue. I give thanks to God always for you because of the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus that in every way you were enriched in him in, with all speech and all knowledge even as the testimony to Christ was confirmed among you so that you were not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ who will sustain you to the end guiltless of the day of our Lord Jesus Christ God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son Jesus Christ our Lord Sounds like a pretty good church. Now, if you've read Corinthians, you're a little put off by a little, uh, what? Is he just being polite? Is he just heaping compliments they don't deserve? Because you know it's throwdown in the rest of the 1st and 2nd Corinthians. And there were two letters to the Corinthians that we don't have, one of which he calls the harsh letter. And you're going, there was a harsher one? Was it just like swearing front to back? So you look at this, it says, all speech, all knowledge, you were enriched in him. You have all the gifts of the Spirit. I mean, they're shooting lightning bolts out of their fingertips. Speaking in tongues, says speaking in tongues, tongues, that's with the N removed, tongues. Um, I think I was thinking of the phrase, cats and dogs living together. Ghostbusters. Okay. They're pretty established. You'd say, if I found a church described this way when I moved to Waukesha, that they were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, how what they spoke of and what they knew. And they had metaphysics on parade. All the gifts, any spiritual gift. You were not lacking. As you're waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus, you've got this conversation on the things of God that's informed. And you could do magic tricks. But there's a problem. Verse 10, I appeal to you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all 
of you agree and that there be no dissension among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brethren. What I mean is that each one of you says, I belong to Paul, or I belong to Apollos, or I belong to Cephas, or I belong to Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I am thankful that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, lest anyone should say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Now what I was looking at as I saw, was looking at this passage, is generally, if you're looking at a verse on dissension in the church, you look at this paragraph I just read. And then if you want to talk about the wisdom of God in the church and in the gospel, uh, and how it's not the wisdom of this age, blah, blah, you look at the next portion. You don't put the two together. But one of the things that you realize is that although he compliments the church in things that we value as uh, a Christianity in the kingdom of God today, um, well-spoken pastors, knowledgeable men, gifts uh, that prove that God is working. And yet, they were having factious fights. And not dividing over whether they're followers of Luther or Calvin or Zwingli or what's the other guy? Arminius. Not dividing over some B-League fight because that's all that those are. As you start to fight over whether or not you're a follower of Willis Berry Schaefer and dispensationalism or, or uh, Rush Dooney and his theonomy, those are all sea leaders. We're talking about, we're fighting over whether we're in St. Paul's camp or Apollos' camp or Peter. That's Cephas, is Peter. Or Jesus. That's the group. Those are the groups. Today, we would say, innocently enough, because our New Testament of teaching for the body is so rooted in Pauline epistles that the church is largely Pauline just because of the weight of how much he wrote. Not because we're up against Peter, because I think everybody likes Peter just as much. But, but that's, what they were, that's where their factiousness was here, the very beginning of the church. Apollos had been sent by them out of Ephesus into Corinth. Um, so he was an, a delegate of uh, Paul and Priscilla and Aquila. So there's not a conflict between these agents. Christ and Paul are not... But they're picking up affections of following and leaning into other people's lives because they don't agree with them, perhaps just on a stress or maybe a, a, a kind of voice that is held, a kind of voice that's spoken with. How good the rhetoric is. We know Apollos was gifted. We know that Paul wasn't, or didn't, he said he wasn't. He did not come with plausible speech. He did not, he, he, but, but we'll get to that a little bit later in the passage. So I want you to be thinking about 
is when he gets to when he gets to this issue in the last verse there that I read I was not sent to baptize even which is one of the big arguments among the saints for the last oh I don't know 2,000 years what does baptism do what does it mean what are we talking about here let's have a fight and Paul says I don't even remember who I baptized he said but I wasn't even sent to baptize I was sent to preach the gospel not with eloquent wisdom now he's saying probably that which was the dividing line between these groups Paul was schooled but not talented Peter was unschooled Apollos schooled and good at it and then there were the people who were pulling the piety vote on with Christ and people still do that today they'll say we are the church of Christ there is a church called the church of Christ well how can you beat that we went with all souls I mean somebody trumped us with church of Christ why didn't we think of that Maybe Jesus Christ of maybe latter days or something. <laughs> Joke. <laughs> Laugh or I'll tell it again. <laughs> Thank you. Well, when he's saying this, he's saying, I, these things that might, you might be, they use the popular term, triggering to theologically overwrought individuals. When you can't read a passage that has the word baptism in it without the whole argument springing to mind. He says, I'm not even good at preaching what I did preach eloquently. Because that which was important, the cross of Christ has power. And factious people decide to follow some other thread some inordinate valuation of something that's good, something that's true, something that's valuable, but it is not the cross of Christ and its power. And Paul was saying, I want you to have the same mind. Like he does in Philippians, when he says, we, we cover this, I don't know when, Philippians someplace, uh, talks about being of one mind. And then it says, have this mind, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He says, think this way. Not think this opinion about penal substitutionary atonement, or the Trinity, or baptism, or church ritual, or all that. It doesn't say, think this. All agree about all those things. No, you all agree about this thing. The humility we have in Christ. And he's doing the same thing here. He says, I want you to have one mind. And the one mind is, how do we, who enjoy listening to Apollos more than we enjoy listening to Paul, how do we live together in the church where there is not dissension? Because it wasn't just, I like this and I like that. It was dissension. When people start to fight over a theology or a person, it doesn't automatically undo itself. When you try to fight over what God wants you to be, you find yourself wonderfully fellowshipping with somebody else. You know, say, well, I think Jesus 
wants us to be holy. The other person looks at you, I think the same thing. Jesus died for sins. Yes. Amen. It's the cross of Christ has a power and you should be thinking commonly with every believer you know. There are believers from a variety of churches here this morning. Every believer you know, the cross of Christ stands before you in its power far and away above a theological distinction or a dissension about following certain styles. For the word of God, word of the cross, is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. What he's reminding the Corinthians, he didn't get lost in the, in the subject matter. He said, there's dissensions among you. I want you to have one mind. And then he starts talking about what kind of mind we were all called to. We were all set apart by the power of God. To all of us who were being saved, it is the power of God. Because the cross gets emptied of its power. If I start to focus my ministry on greatness or compelling apologetic um, skills, which is, again, these are not bad things. But when I turn to those as if that was the centerpiece of the faith, not the power of God to save, not the power of God to change who you are, that regardless how incoherent... Ever wish, you know... you. Some of you I notice, I, I lead the singing and I have to sing with verve up here. I'm not gifted, but some of you don't sing. And this is not a reprimand. But you don't sing because you don't think you have a good voice. That's fine. And some of you might sit there and wish, you know, I really wish I could argue with people really well. Some of you have got big thoughts, great thoughts, but when you open your mouth, start stammering and blah, 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 blah. And you think people are pointing and staring. This is a great gift to you. It's not eloquent wisdom. It's the power of God in you to save. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will thwart. So all those people you were admiring and wish you could be just like them, don't make this into a theology into which, that, which you then fight with other Christians about. You're saying what is important for the believers is that they share the importance of the power of God to save. And that that shared view of importance is expressed in you being so saved. Not just make it to the ledger, you know, get on the list, walk the aisle, sign the card. It's the power of God. The one thing you should all agree is the power of God to save as it is expressed in you. When he quotes this, it's out of Isaiah 29. Here it's on the, the left-hand side. Starting with, this is out of the Septuagint, uh, by the whom, by the way. The Lord has said, this people draw nigh to me with their mouth, and they honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching the commandments and doctrines of men. Well, you all know that verse. This comes up in other places in the New Testament. And you know that it describes an accurate, it's an accurate religious picture of people who've got all the religious things, like he just listed for Corinth, 
the all speech, all knowledge, all gifts. And these guys, these Jews, they're at the temple, they're doing all the things, they're teaching the commandments. Therefore, verse 14, behold, I will proceed to remove this people, and I will remove them, and I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and will hide the understanding of the prudent. Now when he quotes this, he's talking about not Plato and Aristotle, not that they're right all the time, but he's not talking about just the secular philosophers. He's talking about these are the Jews that are being judged in Isaiah because our religion is filled with smarty pants people who go around the body of Christ dividing the saints. And nobody waits to see whether Joe smarty pants, and I don't care which name, when I say smarty pants, you put in there because you probably have a smarty pants um, contender. Someone you really like. I'm a big C.S. Lewis fan. So he's in my smarty pants role. Who's in yours? Now it doesn't make them wrong. But the idea of the inordinate is crucial here because God says you could be doing everything, have everything that you might seem to value, and somehow you've got a train wreck of relationships in the church. So I will destroy the wisdom of these wise. Verse 15, there in Isaiah 29, Woe to them that deepen their counsel and not by the Lord. Woe to them that take secret counsel and whose works are in darkness. And they say, who has seen us and who, and who shall know us or what we do? People even build whole systems of deep counsel claims about their about whatever it is. And again, they might be right. They, they can be so right, they destroy the church and stand before God in the judgment having to give answer for the lives they destroyed by being right. So what do you have to do? It's not just admonish them once or twice and have nothing more to do with them. <coughs> We want to have a body of believers where we encourage that the power of God to save is the primary thing you're looking to see, looking to experience, looking to encourage in people. I'd love to have a debate about whatever you disagree with me on, and it's everything. So we could be busy. But let's get the power of God to save clear in both of our lives that our, we've experienced the change that Jesus Christ brings. He says, where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Now, interesting there, he's quoting another passage out of Isaiah, Isaiah 33. Kind of not quoting it, but just sort of using the terminology. And it's not in your Bible. I think it's only in the Septuagint that it reads that way. But, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. He is letting you know that everything we measure the church by, we measure the church by 
assent to certain propositions and following of certain rhetorically gifted men, reading rhetorically gifted works. And those are all fine, again, in, but, but when they're inordinate, they're sin against God. Because they will come back and cease to be the way you lead your life after you get saved. They start to be evidence that you're saved if you agree with so-and-so. And it ceases to be the power of God to save at all. Not just diminished, at all. I have met theologically gifted men who didn't seem to know the Lord Jesus Christ in any kind of personal way. They were mean, vindictive, awful people. And it's awful when you see that in someone you agree with. Easy to spot it in somebody who's your theological opposition. You know, you might think that they're all that way. But when it's somebody you, I was reading a paper years ago by someone with whom I agreed, and so I was looking forward to this experience of hail fellow well-met friend. And he came across, even on paper, he came across like an awful, awful human being. Because the very nature of our faith, the folly of what we preach to save those who, who believe, it pleased God to have the whole nature of the thing not be the kind of thing that we're tempted to divide up and be one-upmanship on other people. Because everyone likes to be viewed as in the smart crew, the cool crew, whatever it is, whatever your divisiveness is based on. The Jews demand signs, the Greek seeks wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. Is Christ crucified a stumbling block to you? Is the expectation that God has put in Christ to save you from sin and make a new life in you, is that, well, that's not really mature. Does Jesus Christ want this of you, but the church wants something else of you? We preach Christ crucified. To those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. What he's encouraging for these Christians in dissension, that for all their knowledge, all their speech, all their gifts, they needed to stop thinking about secondary issues or tertiary issues as points of division and saying, have I measured, is the dipstick run into my life? Does it come out saying, the power of God? Does it come out saying, this is the wisdom of God? Now I think C.S. Lewis was very wise. Wrong about any number of things. Heaven, he was Anglican. Irish. But he was very, 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 very smart. I don't want to find out. This is a dilemma that I've faced. Because I, again, have I told you I like C.S. Lewis? I have readings once a week out of his stuff for people. I, I have private sessions where I sign essays and meet with them for discussion. C.S. Lewis stuff. I mean, I'm like a disciple. I smoke. And what else do I do? We're tweed. I mean, it's like the club gear. 
but you run the dipstick into Evan and it shouldn't come out going C.S. Lewis. As much as I like him. Or the wisdom of C.S. Lewis. We've got to be able to say that Christ has come into the world to save sinners, you being one of them, in the power of God, to have done that in you. Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. That's for us who have been called. Do we lean, do we step into, not the really interesting argument, and I've been in a lot of really interesting arguments, and I was right in them. I don't know what they're about, but I was right in them. And how easy it is, it's, it's like chocolate. Now, you know I'm not reformed. There's nothing better than some poor, unsuspecting person of a certain persuasion saying something that's like a high and lofting ping pong ball coming over and click on the table and you back up and you brush the dust off your paddle and then you just nail them. Just, 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 they're pinned against the wall with a ping pong ball where it hit Goliath and down they are, five smooth stones. I just needed one. And I want to tell you that is just sweet. Sweet fellowship. <laughs> but you can only have and it can be I've had the wonderful times with the reformed brethren in those sorts of debates but only if the power of God and the wisdom of God is ordinately placed above it all you say like Larry Lucas used to say does Jesus Christ fill your windshield and does the life you have in him fill your life not your posing as C.S. Lewis or your posing as whoever else who would, anybody else got anything? Like a, anything? Anybody? Any fans? Anybody? Besides Evan Wilson. Okay, just C.S. Lewis then. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Do you understand that when you have these divisions in the body? You have made, you have led the situation with something other than what God has done in you to save you. For consider your call, brethren. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. He's reminding them you didn't have standing and all of a sudden you're getting standing over each other. I am of Paul. I am of Apollos. I like the fact, he says, was Paul crucified for you? He's actually talking to the people who agree with him. Were you baptized in the name of Paul? That's why it's good to apply it to us, ourselves, when we are tempted to be find some other point of power. Rhetorical power, knowledge power, metaphysical power and not the power of God to change lives through Jesus Christ but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise and chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong God chose what is low and despised in the world even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He's still on topic about what we do to shove ourselves forward and dominant in the body of Christ. That's where a dissension happens. 
picking Luther or Arminius or Zwingli, pick Paul or Cephas or, or Apollos, do what you want, but it's causing a dissension because you're boasting of human advancement, not boasting of the power of God. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom, our righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boasts of the Lord. So if the, the, the one mind you're supposed to find, when you have this temptation to division, and believe me, as you grow in grace, as you grow in knowledge, as you go to another church where somebody hasn't been informed of your views adequately, you have this awful feeling that you need to go tell them how wrong they are. I will meet you after the church. You can tell me how wrong I am. We get that temptation. All of us have done it. I have done it. But if we measure true wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, we find out that it rests in Christ. Now he quotes this passage, let him who boasts, boasts of the Lord. And that boasting, it's a, it's a conflation or a truncation of a quote out of Jeremiah. Oh, wonderfully put here in the left-hand column. Also out of the Septuagint. Thus saith the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, and let not the strong man boast in his strength, let not the rich man boast in his wealth, but let him that boast boasts, boast of this, the understanding and knowing that I am the Lord that exercise mercy and judgment and righteousness upon the earth. For in these things is my pleasure, says the Lord. So if you're stepping into a situation new with believers, you don't know what they think, you, they might disagree with you, God forfend. But you're measured as the primary thing in your life is the power of God to bring about mercy, judgment, and righteousness. Or in the passage out of Corinthians, wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Has it happened in you? Do you walk around like someone forgiven? Do you walk around like someone who's been redeemed? What does it say in John 1? To all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the power to become children of God. Have you lived a life in which someone looking at you go, he is a lot like I imagine Jesus Christ would be. Is your life in the power of God? You've got a lot to do. It's much easier to learn all of C.S. Lewis's apologetic tricks. It's easy to become someone with an indexed mind that fills in all the blanks when C.S. Lewis is mentioned. And people can be really impressed that I have this trick, and I'll admit it to you now. Because you're going to come over at some point, and I'm going to do it to you. And you're going to, if I don't tell you, you might be falsely impressed. We'll be in a discussion. It'll seem unique and interesting to you. It'll be very predictable. And in that discussion, you'll bring something up and say, ah, oh, just a minute. I'll hop up from my chair, and I'll go to a shelf. There's many books on it. I'll pull a book off, seemingly randomly, and I'll flip to a page, and I'll read the most clear quote of C.S. Lewis that you've ever heard. And you will accredit me with a completely indexed knowledge of everything C.S. Lewis wrote. I know, I know that one quote. I know where it is. That's it. That's all I know. So I always go there. 
But for the, so when I do that, you're, you're going to be impressed, okay? But we, we find ourselves creating these ways of measuring our, our, our strength, our, our, our better than other people. Oh yeah, God has made you better than other people. By the grace of God. But you have to be that better thing. Righteous. Loving. Kind. Patient. If you're going to boast of anything, can you, in all honesty, boast of this? That God, your God, that you serve, is the God of understanding, mercy, judgment, and righteousness. Oh, the understanding and knowing that he is the Lord of those things. Do you understand that? In Christ, we not only understand it like uh, Jeremiah could in the Old Testament, we received it in the Holy Spirit. When I came to you, brethren, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God in lofty words or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in much fear and trembling. And in my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom. Not that he didn't come in an intriguing way. Because he came in an intriguing way. It just wasn't the intrigue of what makes Bible teachers popular. Or spiritual teachers interesting. Because he did not want the cross of Christ emptied of its power. He did come in demonstration of the spirit and of power. That, in red, your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. That is the lesson from the first part of the chapter 1. What is the one mind you should share? That your faith would not rest in Paul, Apollos, Cephas. That it rests... In the power of God. And it rests in the power of God because you've experienced the power of God. The powers of darkness, if they're involved in your life, might want to tempt you to all sorts of directions. And one, one way that it loves to destroy religious people is to make them all the more religious. And uh, God help you. All the more involved in one group or another trying to bring it to world domination. It's temptation. Don't go that direction. Realize that your very salvation rests in the power of God, not in the wisdom of men. So as it says in one of Paul's epistles, as you received him, so live in him. We're always to have this view. It's what God has done in you. Has God done something? Run that dipstick. Are you loving? Are you joyful? Are you peaceful? Are you patient? Find the list. It's in Ephesians 5. Write it down really big. Put it on a, you know, a check-off list on your fridge. So before coffee, you check. You're not post-coffee where you have chemistry aiding Christianity. But before you had your coffee. You said, I, am I a Christian before I have my coffee? It's, does Christ have the power to save a man without caffeine? It's not in the wisdom of men, but the power of God. And that's where your faith and your one-mindedness should be. Let's thank God. Dear Lord, we're grateful. You're merciful to us. Keep us. 
rejoicing in the differences we have because of what we have in your son's power. We'd ask that his example, his gift to us, your Holy Spirit, would conspire to make us the kind of Christians that people would remark on as Christians. And that we'd be enjoying fellowship regardless of how divergent our views are because we love your son. And in his name we pray. Amen.